Well, it's good to be here. It's good to see you. It reminds me of just some of the really good memories we have from our time here. Just some of the kindness that we experienced from so many of you. One of the joys about coming back is to see how much bigger a lot of the kids are who were little when my boys were little. And so it's just, it's personally exciting and enjoyable just to see so many of you that we spent so much time with those years. If you don't have your Bible open, turn to Acts 28. The book of Acts reminds me of a scene from the beginning of the movie, The Princess Bride, which I think is one of the great movies of all time. So at the beginning of the movie, a grandfather comes to visit his sick grandson, and he wants to read him a book. But the grandson would rather play video games. He's not interested in the book until his grandfather mentions that the book is filled with sword fights and pirates, a giant, and even true love. Well, the book of Acts is a little bit like that book because it's filled with arrests and beatings and trials and escapes and mobs and shipwrecks and snakes and executions. It's a book filled with adventure and suspense. If you've never read the book of Acts in one sitting, I would encourage you to do that sometime. It's fascinating to start at the beginning and make it all the way through the end just at one time. All of the suspenseful moments in the book of Acts lead to chapter 28, where we expect to find resolution. But what we find is something else entirely. If the book of Acts were a movie, it would end like the most recent Spider-Man movie, if you went and saw that. It ends with a black screen that says, to be continued. Like That's not how we expect the book of Acts to end. Now, the reason that it doesn't have a normal ending is because it really doesn't end. If we're to understand the lack of conclusion, we have to actually look at the introduction. So just listen as I read the first couple verses of the book of Acts. This is how we're introduced to the book. It says this, in the first book, now that's referring to the gospel of Luke. So in the gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I, Luke, the human author, have dealt with all that Jesus, listen to this, began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen. So if Luke was what Jesus began to do and teach, the book of Acts is the continuing story of what Jesus does and teaches. Acts is not primarily about Peter or Paul, but it's about what Jesus and what Jesus does and teaches through his disciples. And so the final scenes of the book of Acts, which Bonnie just read for us, take place around AD 60. The question we should ask is, did Jesus stop speaking and acting through his disciples in AD 60. Well, the acts of Jesus didn't stop then. They continued for almost 2,000 years. And so the conclusion of the book of Acts is not a normal conclusion because Acts has not really concluded. The, the conclusion of Acts is a call for all of the disciples of Jesus to continue the work which Jesus began when he was here on earth. You could say the conclusion of Acts is an invitation to act. So in the final verses here of Acts, there's this four-part pattern we see that's it's repeated throughout the book of Acts, and it's been repeated for almost 2,000 years since. And it will continue to repeat over and over until Jesus returns. So here's the four-fold pattern that the book of Acts ends with. New place, new people, same message, same mission. So here's the first thing we see is a new place. Look at verse 16. It says, when we came into Rome, so Luke is there talking about him and Paul and a few others with them. Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So after Paul had been in prison for a number of years, and then he took a, a harrowing four-month journey through the Mediterranean Sea, 
he finally makes it safely to Rome, where he will, he will stay under house arrest until he appears before Caesar. So what started in Jerusalem 30 years earlier has now spread to the capital of the known world. So in chapter 1 of the book of Acts, Jesus gathers his disciples to himself before he ascends to heaven, and he says this. He says, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That may have made some sense. In all Judea, maybe Samaria, that seems a little insane. It's further out. And then he ends by saying, and to the end of the earth. They didn't have planes. How do you get to the end of the earth? But yet the gospel here, by the end of the book of Acts, it hasn't made it yet to the end of the earth, but it's made it to the center of the world. And so one of the main lessons from the book of Acts is that the gospel will continue to move forward into new places. There are 75 different places that are named in the book of Acts. We're, we're told specifically of 54 different places by name that the Apostle Paul went to on his three journeys. So the gospel is, is constantly going into new places. This not only happened in the first 30 years of the church, it's continued throughout church history. Churches send Christians into new places to make new disciples and gather those disciples into new churches. And, and those new churches, they then do the same thing. They, they raise up more Christians and they send them out to make new disciples in new places and gather them in new churches. That's the pattern from the very beginning, and it continues till now. And Christians have always understood this. We've always understood that Jesus has called us to take his gospel out to others. A few years ago, I was introduced to a mission organization. I never heard of it. It was called OM International, which takes the gospel to hundreds of places, hundreds of places around the globe. And, and because I met a few people from there, I decided to just try to learn a little bit about it. Was it good? What did they do? And I, I came across a story from the founder about why he founded this, this missions organization that eventually spread really around the world. Here's what he said. He said, my mother for years carried a hunger for the people of China and India. For many years, practically every day as she prayed during family prayer for these two nations, she would break down and weep before she finished praying. Her love was deep and constant, and she will be rewarded eternally for years of love burden for those lands. I don't know about you, when I read that, I said, God, would you do that to me? And I say to you, brothers and sisters, ask God to help burden your heart for the gospel to go into a place where it's not been known and heard. Kids, teenagers, college students. Ask God right now that he would give you the privilege of giving your life to take the gospel to new places. Ask God to help you follow in the footsteps of the Archibalds and the Wallers and the Campbells who have moved to new places to be a witness in those places. Parents, maybe instead of Disney World this year, take one of your kids to Utah or New York City to see the gospel advance into a new place. I grew up hearing names like William Carey and David Livingston and John Patton and Adnarm Judson and David Brainerd and Eric Liddell and Jim Elliott. Right, these are stories we, we hear and we've taught our kids and maybe they've heard in Sunday school about these missionaries who, whose lives have touched so many people in so many different places. And I was thinking about this as I was going through the book of Acts that many of them sat in churches as little kids and they heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ 
and God stirred their heart for a place that they'd never been. And so they boarded boats and they got on small planes and they went to distant lands to take the gospel because there were parents and friends and faithful men and women in their church who prayed for them and encouraged them. Friends, can I encourage you to pray for the privilege of sending more of your people away, sending more of your people off to new places, raising your kids and sending them to new places so that the gospel of the king goes into lands where it's never been heard. So the first part of the pattern is a new place. Here's the second part, new people. So Paul arrives in Rome and he sends a message to the local Jewish leaders and he requests an audience. They come to him. He introduces himself and he basically says, can I explain to you what happened that brought me here? Verse 23 tells us that they sent up, they sort of set up an appointment so they could bring others to listen to him. They tell us in verse 22, they said, we don't know about you and your, your particular circumstances, but we've heard about this Christianity thing. And we know that a lot of people are saying negative things about it. It doesn't really sound receptive. I, I would hate that if I was getting up to preach and they're like, you know, we don't know about you, but everyone talks negative about what you're about to say. Yet, we're told in verse 24 that when Paul starts talking, at least some of them become convinced of the truth. After meeting with them, he says in verse 28 that his focus is going to move to the Gentiles. And then we're told for two years he spends there in Rome under house arrest. It says he meets with all who came to him. His life is a series of encounters with new people. And he sees these encounters as opportunities to share the gospel. Do you realize the same is true of your life? That your life is a series of encounters with new people? Whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, like you're constantly around new people. You're around new people at work, in your neighborhood, at the grocery store, at church. So your life is a series of intersections with people you don't know. What do you do at those intersections? Like there's this temptation, I feel it, to punch the gas, right? I want to get away from these new people as quick as possible. Why not linger? And what is so important for you to do that you couldn't give this person a few moments of your time? Why are we in such a hurry? As Paul spent here two years in prison in Caesarea. Then he spent four months making what should have just been a five-week journey. Then he gets to Rome and he spends two more years under arrest. Was God wasting Paul's time? Like Paul, this is the Apostle Paul, probably the greatest Christian who ever lived, certainly the most effective evangelist, church planner, missionary who's ever lived. Was God wasting his time? Or was God giving Paul new opportunities to impact new people with the gospel? So just think about Paul's pace of life the last four and a half years of the book of Acts. Four of the four and a half years he was under arrest. And the rest he spent on a journey that took three times as long as it should have taken. Like if that's me, I'm like, what a waste of time. God, don't you know who I am? In fact... We know this from history. Paul will be executed by Nero within the next five years. Over half of his final decade of ministry he spent in jail. I think there's a life-changing lesson here for us. If we want to impact people for Jesus, we've got to slow down. The pace at which many of us live 
is a hindrance to gospel impact in people's lives. So I was thinking about this. In general, when is fast better than slow? So I live in North Carolina. So one of my favorite things to eat is beef brisket. So what we do, we smoke meats. Like, you can't make a good beef brisket quickly. It takes hours and hours of cooking at a low temperature. Some of you remember my oldest son, Jack. He's studying to work in, the, in golf. And so I'm his project. It's not very successful right now. But one of the things he tells me whenever I go out to the range, I'm like, hey, tell me why I'm hitting it bad again. He's like, you got to slow down a little bit. I'm trying to go too fast. A few years ago, a group of us went to New York City for a spread truth trip. And on one of our sort of free evenings, we, we went to, there's a Beretta store in Manhattan. And there they have these shotguns. Some of them sell for more than six figures. None of us bought them. In fact, we were scared to hold them. They're like, hold them. I thought it was a trick. That I was going to drop this thing and be on the hook. But there's the salesman there, he went into great detail about how all of it was made by hand. There are these intricate carvings. There was a stock that was, all of it was hand done. It took some craftsmen hours and hours, which is why it was that valuable. See, things that matter, things of great value usually take time. Helping people see the glory and wonder of Jesus and his grace requires us to slow down and engage them. You, we can't do drive-by evangelism. We need to stop and linger at the intersections of life. We need to give time and care to the people that God brings into our path. Are you too busy to see God at work? Are you blowing through all of the intersections, failing to pause and see what's coming? I think if you are, then I'm going to give you the same advice that I give my sons as they've learned to drive. If you blow through the intersections, at some point, there's going to be a car that's coming. And you're going to wish you had stopped and lingered at that intersection and taken time there. Listen, if you blow through every intersection with new people in your life, it is quite likely that because God loves you, he will slow you down. And when he does, this is what you'll say. I'm so thankful God did that. I just wish I had seen it before. I wish I hadn't missed all of those opportunities. Listen, if you're a Christian and you are too busy to engage people in your life, then you are too busy. If God thought slowing down was important for the Apostle Paul, then it's important for you and me. Slow down and engage people. Now, we need to be especially diligent to give time and attention to those who are overlooked and marginalized. Paul doesn't here just engage the Jews. It says he welcomes Gentiles into his life. We know that one of those Gentiles was a runaway slave named Onesimus. And Paul writes a letter to Philemon, and he tells him how he met Onesimus, a slave, when they were prisoners. And it was his privilege there in prison to introduce Onesimus to Jesus. It was in prison that Onesimus became a Christian. Listen, as a Christian, you will never reach a dead end on your journey. Because every twist and every turn brings you to a new intersection where you can impact new people with the gospel. Are your eyes open to the people around you? So Paul's in a new place with new people, but notice he's sharing, third, the same message. He says in verse 23, 
When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Paul's trying to teach them about the kingdom of God, trying to convince them about Jesus. Now, the, the Jewish audience he's talking to would have known certain truths about the kingdom of God. They would agree with Paul that God is the creator, and therefore God is the rightful ruler of all creation. They, they would agree with Paul that God that mankind has rebelled against God and therefore stands guilty before him. They, they would agree with Paul that God has made a way through sacrifices in the temple for sinners to be accepted before him. They would agree with Paul that God would one day send a Messiah into the world to deliver his people and to restore his kingdom. They would have agreed with all of that. But when Paul says, well, the Messiah has come, he was executed by the Romans, he's risen from the dead, and he is now forming a people from every tribe and tongue and nation, which include Jew and Gentile, right, this part shocks them. Because they expect a political king and a political kingdom. And Paul's teaching them that the kingdom of God supersedes national and political boundaries. I love how Paul, who is imprisoned in the capital city of the Roman Empire, teaches here about the kingdom of God. Because he understands that Caesar's kingdom, as impressive as it was at that moment, this is the height of Rome. But like all human kingdoms, it's going to crumble and fall. But the kingdom of God will grow and grow and grow until the day when the king returns. And he ushers his people into that final everlasting version of his kingdom. So Paul there in Rome desires to convince those listening that Jesus is the king and our response to his rule should be to repent of our rebellion and trust his promise of pardon that we kneel and we pledge allegiance to jesus as lord not to caesar not to some political leader and when we do that we're given citizenship papers into his everlasting kingdom and it can never be stripped from us right, this is the message and he wants people to understand it that only only king who can actually keep his promises is jesus like, friends, this is the message that we share. There's a king you can actually trust. There's a leader who has rescued me from my sin. And he rescues me from the darkness daily that threatens to overwhelm me. And this is a message that we share with hope. That, that, that hearing it, some people will be convinced and they'll respond. Now notice Paul doesn't, verse 24, deliver this as a dry and formal theological lecture. It says, verse 24, he is trying to convince them. He's pressing them to make a decision, right? There's no neutral position. Either Jesus is your king or you're in rebellion against him. Parents, I think we can try to be so careful about how we influence our kids that, that sometimes we, maybe we're too cautious. What I mean by that is we understand that as a parent, you have power to manipulate your kids. Every parent who raises their kids in church, could, could coerce them at some age to pray some prayer, to make some profession of faith. You could do it. And, and so we, we're cautious about that because we know that that's not real if we coerce it. But, but listen, never be afraid as a parent to use your influence to convince them that Jesus is king. Like I know some of you have used your influence since the day your child was born to make them a Cubs fan or a Cardinals fan. There are pictures in your house of them in a uniform onesie. So you, you've done everything in your power. Like, I'm convincing you to cheer for this team. Do everything in your power to convince them Jesus is king. And that 
the best way for them to spend their life is in allegiance to him. Now one of Luke's chief concerns when he wrote the Gospel of Luke and here the book of Acts is that he wants to show how all of Scripture points to the coming of Jesus and culminates in his death, resurrection, and return. So he ends his Gospel account saying this. He says this. He says, And beginning with most of all the prophets, Jesus interpreted them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. Notice he basically says the same thing about the Apostle Paul at the end of Acts. That Paul is showing from the law of Moses and the prophets that the scriptures about Jesus. Here's what this means for us, that we read the Bible to see, to know, and to love Jesus. That everything we read in it tells the story of Jesus. I know you just did this as a church, showing how the whole Bible has one message. That as you read the Bible, that you're not concerned about primarily about rules or morals or advice. You open the Bible so you can hear the voice of your king and discern his will. The Bible is God's word to us about his son. Even here, notice verse 25, Paul quotes Isaiah, but he attributes what's in Isaiah to the Holy Spirit. So what you hold in your hand is the very word of the living God, and he speaks through his word. His word has the power to bring people to life, and when his word is proclaimed, when his word is shared, it will accomplish his purposes. So Paul quotes from Isaiah, and he tells how the nation of Israel will reject Jesus as king. They'll refuse to come to God's son, but that God actually will use that rejection to draw even more people into his family. Now you can imagine that when the Jewish leaders heard this part, they didn't love it. And some of, some of them got really angry and, and, and walked away in frustration. And we just need to know, friends, this will, this will happen to us too. That if we're diligent and faithful to proclaim Jesus as king, that there are some who, because we have confronted their cherished sins, will respond with frustration. They may get angry, they may lash out. But if we know the Bible is true, and we understand the cost of rejecting it, then love compels us to share it with others, even if we know it will cherish, it will challenge their sort of deeply held beliefs. Like, we can't avoid this. And we shouldn't try to. Imagine a doctor who refuses to share a bad diagnosis. Or an engineer who won't admit the building is unsafe. Or a software developer who refuses to report a bug. Or an inspector who ignores the cracks in the bridge. When you turn a blind eye to somebody who's about to be destroyed, that's not heroic. So God has given us this message. That just as he promised to the prophets, he sent his son. And his son is establishing his kingdom around the world. New place. New people, same message, and finally, same mission. The mission is simple. We're to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with everyone. The book of Acts is a missionary book because Christians are missionary people. We're not wanderers, we're soldiers. We've received orders, and our lives are to be devoted to the mission given to us by our commander. Now, can you imagine someone reading through the book of Acts, and at the end, not understanding what the church is supposed to do? Like, I think it's pretty obvious that the church is called to share the gospel of Jesus. Look at verse 30. Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul's ministry has been an example of sacrifice. It says here he's living at his own expense. He's chained to a soldier. 
Sacrifice demonstrates that something is valuable. We sacrifice for something we think is worth it. So if, if fitting into a wedding dress is worth it for someone, they won't eat for months before the wedding, right? If, if, if getting out of debt is worth it for someone, they exist on rice and beans for years until that debt is paid off. Often Jesus, in his grace, gives us opportunity to sacrifice for this reason so that people see in us the value of the gospel. Because if the gospel's only ever proclaimed by those who live trouble-free lives, then some people will think this, I'll believe that too if it magically makes all of my problems disappear. But when someone believes the gospel and they tell it to others, even though it requires sacrifice on their part, that demonstrates the value of the gospel. Sacrifice validates the gospel message to those listening. You see, when a man is tied to the stake and he sings while they light the fire, those watching, they know that that man believes the gospel is more precious than his life. So you may right now be facing some difficulties and challenges in your life. Maybe it's health, maybe it's work, maybe it's financial, maybe it's relationship issues and these difficulties and challenges in your life, you're not sure why they're there. Let me just say, maybe God's design so that you can demonstrate to others that Jesus is more precious to you than your health or that Jesus is more precious to you than your safety or your comfort or your will. When you choose to sacrifice for someone else and then in that sacrifice you point to Jesus as the reason, you present a powerful apologetic that Christianity is true. So we share the good news of Jesus sacrificially, but notice we do so warmly. Verse 30 says that Paul, under house arrest, welcomes everyone who comes to him. Right? This is the gospel. The gospel is a message of welcome. That the holy God welcomes sinners into his presence through the sacrifice of his son. When we welcome people into our homes, into our lives, we picture the gospel. Hospitality is the gospel in action. So it's the summer, right? It feels like the summer out here. I'm not quite sure why you guys don't use the, the building with air conditioning during the summer. That's my own personal opinion. I'm a big fan of air conditioning, but it's the summer, and that means we all have plans. We have plans about what we're going to do, where we're going to go, what we're going to accomplish. Do you have plans this summer to welcome someone into your life? Like, I, I don't know what that might look like for you. Maybe there's a person without any family who eats alone most nights. I have a neighbor whose wife just, they just separated. So we've said, how... how how often can we have him come over and eat with us? Because he sits there in a house by himself. Maybe there's a coworker whose spouse has passed away. You know, they're lonely. Maybe, maybe it's someone you interact with through one of your kids' sports. Consider how you can show them the warm and welcoming love of Jesus. You know, normally a message of an invading king is a threat. But the message of the king who invaded earth is a message of peace and welcome. So I can encourage you to celebrate the summer with acts of kindness and hospitality. So our mission here is to share the good news of Jesus sacrificially, warmly, and notice confidently. As Christians, we're, we're not fearful and anxious about the future. Because we know this, King Jesus defeated death, he ascended to the throne, and he waits to return and restore all things. This reality is why, notice this, the final two words in the book of Acts. It doesn't quite come through in the English version. Here are the final two words in the book of Acts. Boldness, unhindered. That's how it ends. Boldness, unhindered. 
Paul speaks with boldness because he is the representative of a king whose purposes cannot be hindered. I want you to consider what Paul has seen in the past 30 years. So Jesus, after he rises from the dead, he, he takes 11 frightened men and he gives them this message that you're to spread the news of my victory around the world. And then Jesus goes to heaven and they're standing there looking up. And I love what the angels say to him, like, why, why are you guys still standing here? It's like Jesus told you what to do. Well, these 11 frightened men start to tell people in Jerusalem about Jesus' message of victory. Jerusalem, though it's important, certainly we think about the importance because of the Bible. Historically, and in that time, all it was was a small city near the eastern edge of the Roman Empire. And yet in three decades, the message has radiated from Jerusalem to the very corners of the Roman Empire. And here now in Acts 28, the leading ambassador of Christianity is in Rome waiting to have an audience with Caesar where he will testify about Jesus and the resurrection before the entire imperial court. And since then, Christianity has not slowed down. It continues to spread to new people and new places. But we have the same message as the first Christians. The message that we share with confidence because we know our king's mission cannot be hindered. So I want you to turn to the end of the book of Acts. But it's not found in Acts. It's actually found in Revelation 7. The book of Acts begins with this command from King Jesus. He says, you're to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and you don't stop until you reach every nation on earth until the message of my victory has really reached the corners of the globe and we get to acts 28 that hasn't happened that's why there's no ending instead we find right those words to be continued well here's where we find the end of the saga revelation 7 verse 9 it says this after this i looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So my prayer for you, Calvary, is that you will continue the mission Jesus has given you until the time when you surround his throne with that multitude.